Dave Max Cork History Matters, brought to you by Red FM. Kieran Connolly, you're the author of Sam Maguire, The Man and the Cup. You're not only from Dunmanway, you're from the square in Dunmanway, so you couldn't get any more Dunmanway if it was your middle name. <laughs> uh, and I presume that... So tell us about who and what you are prior to finding out why it is you wrote that book. All right, I, um, I worked as a lecturer in the Dublin Institute of Technology for most of my career. And I retired in 2016. And then I took up my lifetime ambition of writing a book about Sam McGuire, which I did and was published in 2017. Uh, and, and explain then why that was your life's ambition. I mean, I suppose, you know, you've, you've grown up knowing that the Sam McGuire Cup was named after a man from, from your locality. So that, that, that'll spark an interest, won't it? It was... Um, Surprisingly enough, <laughs> despite the fact that I passed his grave three or four times a day going to and from school, I wasn't aware of his significance or its importance. And um, it was only when a fellow came to court, my eldest sister, he was from Carrick and Shannon, Des Cox was his name, and he said, Margaret Connolly, you never told me that Sam McGuire was from the Manway. And he said, if, it was, if, it, if he was from Carrick and Shannon, the whole world would know about it. <laughs> and literally, that was the first time it ever occurred to me that Dunmanway had a, such a famous son. And um, that was about 1971. And that kind of kindled the idea in my mind of um, eventually writing a book about him. And do you think he's recognised enough in his in his home county of Cork as, as being a Cork man? Do you think there's a pride around the fact that the Sam Maguire Cup is named after a Corkman? I wouldn't think so, Dave. No, I'd say most people are very surprised when they find out he's from Dunmanway and from Cork, uh, most people are, ignorant is probably too strong a word, but ignorant is the word, I think, yeah, of his, um, his life and his career. What is there down West Cork Way to commemorate Sam McGuire? Um, well, Cliff Jeffers, who's from the, the, the Reverend Cliff Jeffers, who's the minister in St. Mary's Church, in, a native of Bandon, um, a couple of years ago, I installed what he, what he labelled the Sam Maguire bells in the church and started teaching people to ring the bells. So there's that, and his headstone, obviously. Um, the park, the local GA park, is called the Sam Maguire Park. Um, there was also, in a townland called Derry Lahan, um, the Sam Maguire um, holiday homes, and there's a, there's a, a monument there as well. Have we a statue anywhere, I wonder? Oh, a statue, I apologise. Is there? There is. Statue in the middle of the square, right in front All of right my good. house. Very good, there you go. <laughs> yeah. It's so close to you, you forget you exactly. forget that you don't even you notice know, it. Well, do you know what? That actually nicely sums up a, a little bit of how you started the story, yeah. uh, in that sometimes we don't notice what's right in front of our own faces. Literally, um, yeah, that's my I, case anyway. And actually, you know, it's almost a wider thing in, in Ireland that it, it's only when there's an external... In fact, you know what? It mightn't even be just an Irish thing. It might be a universal world thing, whereby it's only when there's an external validation of something that... that that, that you almost don't even notice how special it is yourself because you're so used to it. I um, agree. Yeah, that's a perfect description. Perfect description. It took an outsider <laughs> to tell me <laughs> yeah. that Dunman we had the same as son. Well, let me tell you, my connection to Sam Maguire, my my loose connection to Sam Maguire is that back in 2010, when Cork Glass won it, right. uh, Red FM, we were, we were in some way, I don't know, where we connected to Courtier at the time or were we were we media partners and something or other but anyway mm. the boss here at the time said to me listen they need a DJ for the homecoming I said well right. I don't I said I don't really DJ I'm more of kind of an MC presenter sort yeah, of thing yeah, yeah. that's my sideline in the in, in this media world you know yeah. uh, whereas a lot of presenters on, on radio would also would play music places now I've done it yeah. and I can do it but I don't see myself as a music playing DJ as such yeah. so I said to the boss that's not really me you know he says listen you just need to go down stick on a few songs blah 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 Easy breezy, it'll be good for your profile. So I said, you know what, Grant. So I went down anyway on the day, and uh, you know, being a loud man originally, I wouldn't be so used to GAA homecomings. <laughs> uh, sad but true. Neither neither Sam nor Liam would have been returning to Louth that often. Uh, sad but true. My, my, O'Brien, 1957, I think, wasn't it? And my old man remembered that indeed. Oh, yes, right. when 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 um, where when Cork had to wear the blue because there was the oh, colour right. clash. Um, yeah. Louth also were red and white, and yeah, uh, yeah. and they were m- very much the underdogs. But but 
sadly from a Cork perspective they took Sam Maguire back right. uh, out of Cork's clutches in 57 is right mm. but listen I wouldn't be so used to it anyway so the, yeah, the stage yeah. goes up down opposite City Hall uh, a Parliament Street and South Mall right at that juncture know, so you can yeah, have the crowds yeah. down the both ways look it over towards the bus station and down the mall uh, towards Finbar's in the distance mm, yeah and uh, when I got there anyway, they put the, the, the DJ decks out like a dais at the front of the stage. Now, I, I imagined I'd be stuck in the back somewhere, do you know, in beside right, the sound yeah. desk, just putting on songs. The next thing, they're like, DJ out front as the, you know, and I'm like, whoa, okay, uh, right, I'll have to get my head around this. So anyway, I had a, geez, when I think about it, it was a, it was one of those People's Republic of Cork uh, hurling shirts where they made the Leonardo da Vinci figure look like a hurler. <laughs> But it was the closest thing I had to, to, to something that looked GAA. And yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. standing out in front, I, I draped the front of it with a cork flag anyway. And, and over the course of the evening, I got more and more into it, you know. And yeah, there, was, there, was, yeah. there were more and more bits that I had to announce. Um, right. uh, so, I, you know, I was coming up with various things. And at one point I was like, you know, the examiner were live streaming from the, the old bank building that was opposite looking oh, down onto Lord. the thing. And I was like, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, you know, uh, live streaming on the Irish examiner. Uh, and, and I kind of pointed over it. And then I was like, make sure they can hear us in Kerry, you know, and stuff like this anyway. And pe- people were loving that. No, no, but my moment, my moment arrived later in the thing. I'd been told a million times that Sam Maguire would be, would be with us imminently. And there yeah, was any yeah. number of these delays, right? So anyway, someone comes up to me and they said, right, this is it now for definite. Sam Maguire will be with us in 20 minutes. Right. So anyway, I goes, ladies and gentlemen, if I could have your attention for a moment, please. Uh, Sam Maguire will be with us in 20 minutes. Now, I'd given a number of those over the course <laughs> of the evening and people were getting impatient and tired and everything else. But in a, stri- in a stroke, it just came to me and I said, we've waited 20 years. We can wait another 20 minutes. And the place erupted and the flags went all over... I swear oh to God, God, it was the be- It was the moment of my life. Oh yeah, well, that was a wonderful. Forty, wonderful fifty thousand odd people. But I came off the stage, and and both then and in the days to follow, I met people that knew me when I came down to college, mm. knowing next, nor nothing about the GAA, yeah, saying yeah. to me. We were there going, what the hell's your man from Dundalk doing up there? How did he get at centre stage in such a, like a cork moment, you know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And even in the examiner the next day, there was a big shot of the stage and there I I could see myself in the corner of it and I was like, how have I ended up? Uh, anyway... Uh, I always knew that Sam Maguire was a Cork man and that there were various things named about him down below. Um, Liam McCarthy, I kind of... uh, 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 And I did a bit of a Google and found out that he was a Protestant man, which was was also interesting to me too. Yeah, yeah. That's amazing. The thing I think people find most um, surprising is that he he, he didn't play for the local club, the Donnies, before he went to London. Hmm. I wonder what I wonder what is uh, well. He was. A, well, we're going to get into that now. Um, right. Liam McCarthy. Then I would have. I, I, you know, because I, I wondered why would the cup be named after? What have they done? You know. I know what you um, mean. Yeah. And yeah. Liam McCarthy. Then I looked and, and found out that he was from Cork parents, and I thought, should right. she's both of them are Cork? Then. <laughs> <laughs> then one day I was uh, seeing a girl in, in Dublin she lived in Glasnevin and we were heading from Glasnevin through Fibsborough and, and we were heading I could see Croke Park in the distance right. the, the spaceship stadium that it is now it's incredible incredible. and I remember thinking to myself who why is it Croke Park, oh, Croke Park. Uh, who, who was Croke so I did a bit of a Google on that and I found out he was from Cork <laughs> Now, whatever about Sam Maguire, I think people know he's a Cork man. They might yeah. know that McCarthy had Cork parents and, and seemingly swore in Michael Collins into the IRB. Yeah. Uh, but then to find out that Croke was also a born Cork man, I was right, like, yeah, yeah. The, the, the holy trinity, the, the holy trinity of GAA in Ireland, and they're all Cork men. I said, that's a yeah, story yeah. Cork yeah. people need to hear, and that's why I have you on the line. Oh, that's great. There are three, three good reasons for, for so, telling people about them. Yeah. So I know you've written the book about Sam Maguire and, yeah. I, and you've done a bit of delving into McCarthy and Croke and, and, I, and, I, and I guess your knowledge would, would descend in that order. Okay. Uh, I, I'm, I'm presuming in, in terms Absolutely, of your, your yeah, expertise. Yeah. Uh, but let's tease out the, 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 the Holy Trinity, the GA Holy Trinity of Croke, McCarthy and mm. Maguire, all Corkmen. Uh, would we start with Croke or would you start with your special... Your, oh, I think your I'd start special... with Croke because he's the earliest in time. Yes. Okay, so off you go. So 1823. In, um, where's Kil- where's Kilbrin? It's out Ballyclough. Ballyclough. Yeah. And, and for those um, that don't know, where are we going? North, west, east? North, up near Mallow, is it Ballyclough? Yes, yes, yes. It is, yeah, I think so, yeah. yeah. Up the Claw, and I think they he, say. He was, um, his father was William Croke, and he was um, the land agent for the Freeman Estate, which must be up there somewhere. He married a Protestant lady, um, Isabella Plummer, and... 
That was in the, the 1823, the 1820s. Seemingly she got disowned as a result did, of marrying a Catholic. She did indeed. I mean, if you think about it, like 1823 was possibly before emancipation, was oh, it? Well, it was 1829 was emancipation. Oh, geez, the Protestant well, Catholic thing would have been. Wow. I mean, in my lifetime, um, Catholic Protestant marriages were still frowned on. Yeah. Not a mind to say 150 years ago, 200 years so ago. So she got disowned as a result of marrying the, the Catholic. Indeed, there yeah. must be some story there. I, I, it'd yeah. be it'd be brilliant if someone could delve into that. That's but anyway, true indeed, yeah. so yeah. Um, and then and then like for her family, like he, I I don't know was he the only uh, person of the cloth, uh, but but <laughs> to end up an Archbishop of the Catholic Church Incredible, from a yeah. Protestant mother, and they must have been. Several <laughs> of his siblings ended up as priests and nuns. Uh, there you go. I knew. I thought that there was more. Was there about twelve oh, yeah. of them or something? Yeah, five of them, I think, ended up in the, in the clerical garb, wow. yeah, wow. in one shape or another. So the plumbers must have been disgusted. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, but but there you go. So Thomas Croke. Qualified as a priest, and um, he studied in the Irish College in Rome. He was a very brilliant student. He received gold and silver medals, and he um, was um, he donated those to the famine relief in 1846. He was um, ordained a priest in May 1847. I was obviously quite a brilliant student and a brilliant man. Charleville is seemingly where he was educated before. That's right, yeah. Irish yeah. College in, in, in yeah. Paris. And um, his first nationalist episode really was in 1848. Do you think this is true now? No, no, no. Sorry, no, I have a different tale. Oh, go on, go on. <laughs> um, himself and another priest offered to take over the editorship of the nation the Young Ireland newspaper, after the editor, um, Gavin Duffy, was arrested. So he had a, na- a nationalist bent to from, him from, 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 er- from very early on, mm. from very early on indeed, yeah. yeah. So he was, um, the next career move then was president of St. Coleman's College in Fermoy in 1858. Um, returned to be parish priest of Donnerail in 1865. And his next significant event then was the, the First Vatican Council took place in 1870, which was followed by the Second Vatican Council in the early 1960s. Um, he, because of his theological knowledge and excellence, I suppose intellectual excellence, accompanied the Bishop of Klein as his advisor um, to the Vatican Council. And he was then appointed which is an extraordinary thing, Bishop of Auckland in New Zealand in 1870. Um, served for four years and then returned to Ireland. But again, interestingly, on his way through the United States, uh, coming back to Ireland, he went to visit John Devoy, who was a, a leading senior who had um, been in jail and has later immigrated to America and discussed the Irish national struggle with him um, and said he agreed with the national struggle but he didn't agree with armed struggle because he thought there was little hope of um, beating, I suppose, the power of the empire, really, mm. um, which, I suppose, in one sense was a sensible um, sensible approach by, well, certainly by a clergyman, I suppose, yeah. Mm. So then, uh, you, in 1875, you'd, you'd want, we're getting to the GA story again. Well, 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 you just wonder if there, there's a there's a suggestion that Croke fought on the barricades in Paris during the 1848 French Revolution, which was yeah. a, a Europe-wide uh, series of protests, right, which was yeah, really yeah, yeah. about uh, human rights and, and and citizens and democracy uh, well, and, and, yeah, and resting yeah, yeah. the power from the aristocracy. Yeah, and from the yeah. uh, uh, and from the royal elite, and bringing it back to the to the people yeah. as such. Yeah. Yeah. So you'd yeah. wonder if that was true. It's the Irish radical William O'Brien who has said that oh, Croke right. fought in the barricades, yeah. Yeah. Uh, and that's eighteen forty eight. And you're saying when was he? He was ordained in in eighteen forty seven, so he'd have been a priest at the time. You just wonder was yeah. he on the barricades fighting for the people in Paris at yeah. that time, and did that influence? Uh, I know what you mean? Yeah, because he certainly was very radical hmm. and got into trouble with the Vatican several times because of his views on Irish politics and his opposition to the, to the British government in Ireland. Hmm. So he was um, certainly, a, uh, yeah, in terms of Irish nationalism, perhaps not, um, as I said, um, supporting the violent struggle, hmm. but certainly supported the struggle. So I suppose like the Land League and... and oh, yeah, because he was Archbishop of Cashel and during the Land League period, 1879 to 1882, 
he was known as the Land League Archbishop. Mm. And it suggested that he had, as, as early as 1848 or 1849, um, <clears throat> advocated the tactics of the Land League of organising the tenant farmers uh, to fight the landlords um, because he'd been influenced by a man called James Fenton Lawler, who was a, a leading revolutionary in 1848. So he was ahead of his time. And as I said, he got into trouble with the um, with the Vatican, and the papal legate said to the Vatican, "He is one of the most ardent nationalists and a bitter enemy of the British government." <laughs> <laughs> and you wonder why Croke Park got named after him. <laughs> uh, well, well, I, I don't know if that's the answer for it as such, but certainly it, uh, it, it his colours are fairly pegged to the oh, mask. Very early in his life, I'd say. Mm. Very early in his life. Oh God, yes, yes, mm. yes. And um, I was going to say, like as I said, he, the Pope uh, or the Vatican at the time regarded him with suspicion, but Paul Cullen, who was the Cardinal of Ireland, or the mm. Primate of all Ireland at the time, was a very good friend of Croke's, and I suppose, in a sense, protected him uh, from the Vatican's wrath, if you want to put it like that. So then, in GA was formed in November the 1st, 1884, and he was asked by... Uh, <clears throat> Uh, Morris Davin to be um, the patron of the organisation, to which he readily agreed. I suppose he was the Archbishop of Cashel. And, Archbishop of Cashel, I apologise, yeah. yeah and, it was, and it was Thurlist where... Thurlist was where the GA was found. And the, sec- so and the second one then, the Victoria Hotel on Patrick Street, was the second yeah. meeting of the GAA? But he, um, I think the GAA founder said that his patron patronage was hugely important in the early years of the organisation, oh. Uh, to make it respectable for mm. Catholics mm. to be involved in the organisation. So he was um, a powerful influence from that perspective as well. Um, the GA was recognised by all sides as a potentially influential organisation. And in the 1887 convention, the IRB, Irish Republican Brotherhood, um, also known as the Fenians, attempted to take over the GA, and they were opposed by... Um, Charles Stewart Parnell party, who also wanted to take over the GA. So there was a split, which is, a, as Brendan Bean said, is the first thing on the agenda of any organisation, any Irish organisation, <laughs> is the split. So three years after 1884, there was a split. But it is interesting that already, so early on in the GAA's history, uh, that there was a battle, there was a recognition of its, of, oh, of hugely, the, yeah, its, yeah. the potential... It's that they were so... Um, I don't know what's the word I'm looking for. They were so intelligent that they could see the role it, the role it could play in Irish Absolutely, society, in Irish life and Irish politics. So Parnell, of course, is the parliamentary side, and the IRB Absolutely. is the revolutionary yeah. side, the violent, violent revolution. Hmm. So in um, in 1888, then Croke brought the two sides together, and Morris Davin was re-elected president. So he's very important then in um, preserving or starting the GA and then preserving it once it had started. And as I said, he was a very prominent Land Leaguer and public supporter of the Land League, also a supporter of Parnell and the struggle for home rule that they were con- that his party was conducting in um, in, in, Eng- in the English Parliament. Mm-hmm. But then, uh, when, the, when the Parnell split took place, he disowned Parnell, as he probably had to really, mm. because Parnell was involved in a divorce case and... At the time, divorce was scandalous and beyond beyond the pale completely. And certainly for a churchman, um, he could not continue to support somebody who was uh, causing scandal in his in his words, <laughs> or not in his words, but in the words of the church, mm-hmm. that he was causing scandal. And so he said he disowned Parnell. He had a statue of Parnell in his um, <clears throat> in his house, and he threw the statue out. <laughs> Just yeah. <laughs> threw him on uh, his head. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> oh, oh, yeah. But so he, um, his next involvement then was he, um, he presented, in 1896, he presented the GA with two Crow Cups for hurling and football. And they are very interesting because they um, seem to have disappeared. They were last played for in 1916, and my research says that 
uh, counties at the time, clubs represented counties at the time, and clubs were reluctant to hand back the cups, and <laughs> the cups may simply have not been returned to the, the GA headquarters. And in 1970, uh, an antique dealer in Cork found uh, pieces of the, one of the Croke Cups, which I think now is in the GA Museum in Croke Park. So, very important in the GA and in the, the national struggle as well, um, as I pointed out there. So, he died in um, 1902, um, long before um, the others were born. Well, 1902, yeah. So, Long before Maguire was born, anyway. Well, before we before we slide into the other two, I suppose most people know Croke Park was Jones's Road before right, it yeah. was named Croke Park, and nineteen oh two is when Thomas Croke, Archbishop Thomas Croke, the Bishop of Cashel, uh, for whom, by the way, it, it, it's it's why the, the it, I, does it still happen? Does the bishop still throw the ball in for the? I don't think, I don't so. think that still happens. But it, it, in honour of Croke, his successors as Archbishop of Cashel and Emily traditionally are asked to throw in the ball at the yeah, minor yeah, yeah. Gaelic football and All-Ireland hurling finals. So maybe oh, the, that... The, the, um, Croke, the GA organised um, uh, in 1913 they organised um, a Croke memorial competition and the final was held in March 1913. Uh, Kerry beat Lowe's. Sorry about oh, that. That's alright. <laughs> I'm just glad we were, glad we were there. <laughs> and they raised £3,500 from the Croke Memorial Competition, ah. and they decided to buy Jones's Road outright from a man called Frank Deneen from Ballylanders in Limerick. Right, who was a journalist who had bought it three or four years before. Hmm. So the, the official name starting was the Croke Memorial Park. Ah. So that's so from 1913. So he yeah. was he was already dead over a decade. Oh God, yes, uh, yes, But he'd been a, he'd been a towering figure. He'd been the patron of the GA from its Absolutely, foundation. Yeah. He presented. Said, like, helped heal the split, hmm. which could have destroyed the organisation, obviously, if there were two competing versions of the GAA. And it his been disastrous. And his imprimatur gave it a respectability at a time Absolutely, when it, when it yeah, needed yeah, it. I think it's very important, yeah. Donated the cups. Uh, and so then, uh, 1913, they, they have that uh, Croke Memorial game, which raises the money, which buys yeah. the ground, and they name That's it right, after him. Okay. The next okay. time, and let's hope it's sooner rather than later, the next time the rebels descend en masse <laughs> in the red and white to Croke Park, you can look at it in the distance and you'll know why it's named after a Corkman from exactly, Kilbrin, yeah. Yeah. Archbishop Thomas Croke. Grant, yeah. okay. So now I suppose let's go to McCarthy, will we? Yeah, very interesting because um, he's, um, his parents were from Ballygarvan in County Cork. Um, Owen McCarthy and Bridget Dene- Owen McCarthy married Bridget Deneen. Uh, they were native Irish speakers. Uh, they were evicted from their, fam- their farm in 1851. Well, that's interesting. I meant to mention that with Archbishop mm-hmm. Croke in that he'd have, you know, so he would have been uh, uh, made a bit, uh, made a priest. What do you call it? Uh, what, what is it when someone's made a priest? <laughs> <laughs> ordained. Ordained, thank you, that's the word. Uh, ordained a priest in 1847. So just 1847, pro- yeah. So that's actually mid-famine. Uh, yeah, what is because um, as we, I said, he denoted, he donated money, his gold medal and his silver medal to mm. famine relief. Ah, yes. Studied. And when O'Connell died, mm. I forgot to mention there, as they're going through, he O'Connell died in eighteen forty-seven, I think. Yes. Um, he celebrated a mass in Rome for O'Connell's soul. Right. So he was very involved in that struggle as well. Yes, you did mention that, but we did pass over it, so let's repeat it. Studied in the Irish College in Rome, received gold and silver medals, presumably for excellence, and donated them for famine relief in 1846. Ordained the following year. Uh, And now let's bring it back to McCarthy, whose parents were evicted just at... And, you know, many of us will have watched the the, the two-part famine documentary. Yeah, Yeah, uh, yeah. And while in school you learn that it was 1845 to 1850, they spoke about how it it lingered its effects it was seven yeah, or eight yeah. years. So into the early 1850s, the famine yeah. was absolutely still, yeah, still, still extant. An impact, yeah, and that's yeah. when it... So its parents... His parents were, were were those who suffered as a result of the conditions right. around the time his of the famine. His father was known as Koppel, the Irish word for, for horse, because he was a big, strong man. And McCarthy himself was a very big man as well. So he took after his father, they say, in that particular regard. So did they head for London after they were evicted? Did, yeah, and what's very important in that story then is that 
as they were being evicted, his mother, Bridget, um, took a statue of a love, a Celtic, a statue of a Celtic loving cup, and hid it in her cloak or whatever from the bailiffs. And she took that to London with them, and she kept that in her on her mantelpiece all her life, the loving cup, which comes back later okay. when we talk about the creation of the McCarthy Cup. Okay. So what do we know about McCarthy in London? And, and well, then he was started off as a blacksmith, a blacksmith hammerman which was that the blacksmith would indicate <clears throat> with a hammer or a piece of metal where the hammer man was to hit the metal on the, on the, on the anvil, uh, which would have made him fairly strong if he wasn't big to begin with. Mm. Later worked as a signal fitter, which is still an occupation on the railways in London. So then, luckily for him, he was always um, very, very interested in um, Gaelic sports, and played hurling. Hurling was his favourite sport, and he played hurling on Clapham Common in London. And according to the excellent book by Sean Meany, which is called Our Name is on the Cup, which is about McCarthy and Maguire, um, while he was playing hurling in Clapham Common, he saw this very attractive young lady, and she said to him, what's that game you're playing? I've never seen anybody play that before. And they got to talk, and then he, he, she was, her name was Alice Padbury, and her father was a cardboard box manufacturer and fancy box manufacturer. They got together and married, and so he married Alice Padbury in 1875. He began to work for the Padbury Company, but fell out with his um, father-in-law, which is not unusual, I suppose. <laughs> it can be hard mm-hmm. to work for your father-in-law. And he moved to his own premises, which he called St. Bridget's, in memory of his mother, who was named Bridget, Bridget the name. He was very successful as a businessman, and despite stories to the contrary, the business prospered and continued continued to prosper, and is still in operation today, run by his great grandson. Well, I'll, we'll, we'll, when we mentioned that he was buried in an unmarked grave, yeah. we'll question if uh, how that happened. If, if you I know, because you almost presume that he didn't have the money for it. But I know, I know that's the, that's the common story on the the web hmm. that he was that he was a pauper and buried in a pauper's grave. Interesting. But as I said, the firm is still in operation. His hmm. grandson, great grandson, I suppose, great grandson. Hmm. Is currently running the firm. Well, we all know families can go funny, so who knows? Maybe, maybe, maybe he was maybe he was sidelined out of it on some on some level or other. Or, um, huh? Maybe he was sidelined out of it on some level or other. Yeah, or, yeah. Or, I, I don't know what happened to him. We still, we don't know. We don't. Was he a drinker? Do no, we, he do was we, teetotal. Really? Yeah, his father was a. Because that was a big thing at the time, wasn't it? Also, the, oh, the yeah, a- abstinence was, movement. His father was a drinker, and McCarthy was teetotal. Oh, interesting. Yeah. Which was, well, you can imagine if you were evicted from your from your your home in Ballygarvan yeah, yeah. uh, during the famine, yeah, and then to end up in the biggest city in the world, and you know, be, you be might Irish have needed you might have needed a bit of drink along the way. <laughs> yeah, find yeah. it hard to make a living. Yeah, wouldn't be easy. No, wouldn't be. Easy and all, and no. similarly, working for the father-in-law, Mister Mister Padbury, <laughs> um, his his Irish leanings, <laughs> you know, obviously, he, no, you know, no. if he worked for him initially, it can't have been a huge thing. But no, his no. activities going forward would have become more and more uh, revolved oh, around yeah, yeah. Irish okay, affairs yeah. and Irish revolutionary affairs. Yeah, so yeah. that no, maybe yeah, wasn't an easy more, thing yeah. for his well, for his English part, family. Yeah. yeah. But as I said from the very start, he was. Um, very interested in Gaelic games and was a precursor of the GA, if you want to put it like that. Mm. So the London County Board was formed in 1896 and he became the first treasurer. And it's recorded that the sum total of the treasury was four shillings in old money, which is, I suppose, I don't know, 50p or something in Northern (laughs) 50 cents. But he, as a wealthy man, he was very, very generous um, to the GA and to Irish people who were in need of assistance and was very good at donating medals and cups to various clubs and various competitions. He moved to be president or chairperson in 1898. He held that position until 1907 and he was followed in that position by Sam McGuire. Mm. And during those years of the early 1900s, up to 1912 or thereabouts, 
himself and Maguire rotated the jobs of chairperson and secretary Interesting. Uh, between each other. So like the, the way McCurtain and McSweeney were, were hand in glove exactly. here in Cork politically, <laughs> exactly, Maguire and McCarthy were in the London County Board. Oh yeah, yeah, and very obviously very good friends and very close working partners mm. and pr- presumably sharing, of course they did, they shared similar national ideals as mm. we call them. Yes. So um, the GA became, the GA then allowed London to become a province of the GA in 1901 which allowed London then to participate in the All-Ireland final. And the way the GA organised that was that the 32 counties played, produced a champion, and then in what they call the away final, the London team played the winners of the 32 county competition. McCarthy became the secretary stroke treasurer of the London, of the English Council and helped to set up the Lancashire County Board. So then, in 1900, he decided he'd try his hand at politics. So this is 47, 47 years of age. And just, that's right. So he's 22 when he marries. Yeah. Um, and it's 1896, so what's that? That's 43 yeah, when he's so the he's treasurer. Yeah, 1900 of... now, so he's what, 47? Hmm, yeah. 47, yeah. Um, he was elected as an independent councillor, and this is a good one as well. He was elected for Peckham, Peckham number 7 ward. And, of course, Peckham is where Delboy and the other lads lived <laughs> in Nelson Mandela House. That's right. Um, he was known as Fighting Mac. Fighting Mac. Fighting Mac, the, 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 the couple Fighting Mac. That's right. He was a big man, just like his father, as I mm. said. And he was known as... He held a seat for 12 years mm. and then decided that... I'm, I'm guessing he was no shrinking violet. Oh, God, no, he wasn't. <laughs> From, from the records, he was quite vociferous on the corporation, on the county corporation, mm-hmm. and um, sat on many committees and was very helpful. Um, I suppose, like modern politicians, he was very good at trying to help people to navigate their way through the bureaucracy mm-hmm. and the regulations of the Victorian Civil Service, trying to get their their rights, I suppose you'd say. Yeah. And mean, meantime, he's also a member of uh, secret societies bent, well, bent, bent on revolution. Irish volunteers <laughs> when they were formed. Yeah. The IRB and then the vice president of the London Gaelic League. So he's straddling m- many... His, his, his connection means. then, his next connection to Maguire is he recruited Maguire into the IRB in 1902. OK. Yeah. And... So, again, which is um, an echo, um, going back, of modern times, um, the rule against playing foreign games was introduced in the 1900s, and there was a split in the London GAA on the issue of the foreign rules. McCarthy and Maguire supported the ban on people playing foreign rules, and there was a separate um, board created with McCarthy and Maguire in charge. Well, we'll we'll come back to Maguire, but he yeah. he went for London. When did he head for London? Uh, Eighteen ninety-seven. Eighty. So he would have been a twenty-year-old man. Exactly when he went to London. Twenty. So Eighteen ninety-seven. Exactly. So he wasn't there that long when he was up to his neck in all of the politics. No, maybe maybe he was a uh, you know sort of a, a bit of a bruiser for for McCarthy or or support for yeah, McCarthy yeah. who would have been longer in the tooth at that point. That's right. Oh, McCarthy was bigger and older and strong. You know, mm. more. Imposing, yeah. So no, and no foreign games if you're going to be part of London GH. It was <laughs> quite militant, quite militant even then, wasn't it? Oh yeah, Colin McCarthy and Maguire, anyway. Oh. <laughs> Straight, like because whatever you can understand it in Ireland when you know there was the competition over other sports, yes, but yeah. to be smack bang in the middle of London and say you won't and play. I, I should say there, Michael Collins also sided with them. His club also voted in favour of the ban on people playing foreign games. So McCarthy, Maguire, and Collins <laughs> were together at that point. Wow. In the London County Board of the GA wow. and in the Irish Republican Brotherhood, goodness, and me. in the Gaelic League. Well, there we go, because Maguire seemingly swore in Collins. Oh, he did, yeah. yeah. So, I mean, the, the, so the, the direct the, link. The Cork Mafia—that's what we've unearthed <laughs> here, huh? Because uh, there's a historian. Um, what's his name? Roy Foster. He wrote yes, a book called yes. "Visit Faces" mm-hmm. about this period, and he said you could draw a direct line of subversion from West Cork to London with a stream of people like Collins and Maguire who immigrated to London and helped to undermine the Empire's control over England, over Ireland. Goodness me. 
So you could see a graph almost, a visual image mm. of a path being beaten from Cork over to London of future leaders of the Republican movement and the Gaelic Athletic Association. Mm. So he was a great supporter of Padraig Pearce and subsequently founded, uh, 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 later on the 20s, I think, founded a club called the Pearce Brothers. He supported him financially when he started his school, St. Enders, in Rathfarnham, in 1908, and he sent his son Eugene there as a boarder. And Eugene um, attended the meeting in, in the um, rotunda to form the Irish Volunteers as the delegate or one of the representatives for London. Um, again, in his book, uh, Sean Meany suggests that he may have helped to finance the Hoth gun running in July 1914 when the Volunteers matched the gun running at Larne, carried out by the Ulster Volunteers uh, two years before. And then in 1916, there was a meeting of the Volunteers in London um, to, to decide what to do about the forthcoming revolution rebellion in Ireland. And McCarthy, Michael Collins asked McCarthy for his advice. And McCarthy says, supposedly, if you come from Clannacilty, it is obvious where you must go. So Collins went back to Dublin, took part in the Rising, and because uh, most of the leaders of the IRB died in 1916 or were executed, and Collins took over the IRB, and that created a big link then between him, McCarthy, and Maguire in the years of the War of Independence. Mm. It is also suggested, again by Sean Meany in that wonderful book, um, that De Valera was arrested, I think it was after what was called the German Plot, where Sinn Féin was supposed to be intriguing for the Germans whom the British were fighting, and was held in Lincoln Jail. He was broken out of Lincoln Jail, and it is suggested that um, McCarthy paid for the transport of the volunteers from London to Lincoln to help Dev escape. Mm. So the... Then in March 1919, Sinn Féin set up um, the Irish Self-Determination League and he formed a branch in Peckham of the Irish Self-Determination League. Then we come to his, um, his, um, his cup. Um, the Doyle loan, Michael Collins was Minister for Finance in the Doyle government of 1919 and they launched an appeal to the Irish people and the Irish people all over the world to raise £250,000 for the Doyle operation, the IRA's operations. He became treasurer of the London Committee and he donated £50, which would be £2,600 in €2,800 in 2019. So when the Doyle loan was repaid, it was at a meeting of the Brothers Pierce Club, which he had helped to form. It was decided that when the loan was repaid, McCarthy would give the £50 to the GAA to buy um, a cup in his name. And the design he chose, going back to my very first point about McCarthy, was the Gaelic Loving Cup, because that had been prominent in his youth and his adult, I suppose, when he was at home, mm -hmm. that it was on the mantelpiece, and I'm sure his mother frequently reminded him of the significance of the Loving Cup to the family. So it was made by Edward Johnson, Jewellers in Grafton Street, and presented to the GAA in 1922. Um, the cup was first won by Limerick in 1923, uh, which is an ice echo of what happened last Sunday. And the, this was actually for the 1921 championship, because in those years, it was often the case that finals were played years after the, in, the the matches leading to the final had been paid mm. had been played. Sorry. Right. So the Limerick captain Bob Bob McConkey was the first captain to lift the South the McCarthy Cup because, like the Sam McGuire Cup, it got some battering when it went around the counties. It was decided decided to retire the cup in 1991. The last man to receive it, the old, the first, the first 
McCarthy Cup was Declan Carr Tipperary and the first man to receive the new McCarthy Cup was um, Liam Fennelly of, of Kilkenny. During the Civil War, um, both Maguire and McCarthy um, sided with Michael Collins in the split in the IRA and Sinn Féin in that terrible period. And that meant that um, McCarthy was sidelined from his GA activities um, during that period. So he died, we're going to the interesting bit then about his death and his burial and all that. He died on September 1920, September the 28th. His wife died very soon after, within a week or two weeks. And <clears throat> Sean Meany's mother remembers being in the um, house, the McCarthy house, where McCarthy himself was dying in one room and his wife was so unwell that she couldn't go to see him, even though she was in another room in the house. So then he was buried in a regular grave, which was recorded as a regular burial, um, but the grave wasn't marked. There was no headstone put up. Interesting. Which is a tale in itself, which we have, I have yet to find a, a rational explanation for. Mm. There was a suggestion <clears throat> that there was contention about the will uh, between the children, mm. and that might have led to some... I don't know, bitterness or competition or whatever. Goodness me. But yeah. anyway, it wasn't until Sean Meany um, dug up the facts about the burial that in 1996 he was able to persuade the GA to raise a headstone to McCarthy in the grave in Dulwich, uh, where the headstone is. And in May 2000, <clears throat> he, asked, he got the GA to put a monument there as well to Liam McCarthy. So, the, the, as I said at the beginning, the, the firm continues in operation, but there's no um, explanation of why the grave was left unmarked for so many years. But it is now. It is now, which is due to the man, Sean Meany, as I mentioned before, and his book, um, Our Name is on the Cup, because he's the one who did the detective work mm. and contacted descendants of McCarthy, found the grave registration number, uh, visited the graveyard, identified the grave, and then persisted with trying to get somebody to <laughs> formally recognise the grave. So he introduced to him. Mm. So then, Cred um, credit to him, because I think that's a, a worthy thing to do. It's, uh, oh my it's, God, I said it to him in <clears throat> an email today. I said you deserve great credit mm. for your interest and your persistence, because otherwise the grave would still be unmarked, which would be a, a terrible tragedy mm. and a disgrace, really. Mm. You know, yeah, a shame, so, for sure. So he told me that Mc McCarthy's Ancestors, McCarthy's grandchildren, continue to come to the All-Ireland Final every year. And um, so that's a good thing that mm -hmm. they're, they get yes. the tickets and they mm -hmm. um, bring quite a, a group of people with them, I think, to the, um, the All-Ireland Hurling Final. Mm -hmm. So we've, we've hopefully demolished one myth anyway that the poor man was a pauper buried in a pauper's grave. Yes. Well, we have two of the the triumvirate, the the the, the, whole, the GAA, whole, the Cork GAA Holy Trinity. I don't know how to quite phrase it right, <laughs> correctly, right, yeah, yeah. but uh, we we have Croke and we have McCarthy. The younger of them all is is the man you know best because That's you've right, yeah. you've written so the book. Born. Let's let's remind people: Kieran Conley, Sam Maguire, the man in the cup, available online. Right. Yeah. So it's um, a good read, is it, Kieran? Oh, gee. <laughs> <laughs> of course it is. <laughs> So go on, give us, give us. Uh... Right, so he was born in March, yeah. March 11, 1877, just a few miles north of Dunmanway, <clears throat> in a townland called Malabraca. His parents farmed there, and I think the unique thing about them and him is that they were members of the Church of Ireland, and at the time, about 12% of the population of Dunmanway was members of church, were members of Church of Ireland, and it continues to have quite a high percentage of members of that church. In the um, in the in the area, and there's certainly so, no shortage of Kingstons in West Cork. That's, that's for right, sure. exactly. Yeah. So his, uh, would, would his, Maguire, his Maguire, Maguire feels to me like more of a Northern name than a than a Cork name. Are there... I know that, but I, I checked that out at the mm. time, and um, from an, I think it was the 1901 census, I found that there was um, a fair distribution of Maguires from one border of Cork over near Water mm. Waterford. 
to the other border near Kerry. So all over. And just as a, an aside, mm. the man who started the Cork Examiner, his name was McGuire. That's right. Yes, so. correct. Yes. <laughs> I, I think he was a member of, of Parliament, wasn't he? Yeah. So they were... Uh, they Ma- weren't, I know, yeah, we always think of McGuire uh, open for manor, tired mm. for man, yeah. I think. But, okay, uh, but they were no, all over. Um, no. Uh, Malabraca, you were saying, Osquelga, or, or the roots of it is bad ground, is it? It is, yeah. Land of the Little Hillocks. Oh. So they, they they had only a few fertile acres, and the land, well, the land in the next townland was valued at one pound an acre more, and most of the land now is under forestry, which is um, a sign like that the land isn't very productive in, in, in itself. And at that site now, as I said, there's a memorial to Sam McGuire, and the local man Pat Spillane and his family have built the Sam McGuire Memorial Holiday Cottages. And it's a lovely location, beautiful place. Perhaps not the easiest place to make a living, but certainly very good to look at. Mm. So he attended the local model school then. And at the time, Irish history wasn't taught. The Irish language wasn't taught. So Maguire's formation, I think, came from... He he decided, or his parents obviously decided, that he would attend a school in... um, Artfield, just south of Slanakilty, mm. run by a man called Master Madden. And this school was known as the University of the Mountain because Artfield, the people from Artfield, were called the people of the mountain. And it specialised in, as almost, it was a grind school, mm. which specialised in preparing the students for the um, English civil service and the English post office. And they were very good jobs to have at the time when there were very few jobs in Ireland because there was, as we would say in modern times, they were permanent and pensionable. And in Dublin, Michael Cusack, the founder of the GAA, also ran a similar school on a private basis and made quite a lot of money out of running that grind school in Dublin. So Maguire um, stayed with his uncle, <clears throat> who was the coachman for Lord Carberry, Lord, sorry, Coachman for Castle Freak House. Um, so he stayed with him while he, was, while he was studying in Artfield. He was appointed as a sorter in the Mount Pleasant office in 1897, November 1897. And his brothers, John and Richard, followed his tracks and also worked in the um, postal service in London. Um, in 1895, he helped form the London Hibernian Club, which was his club for the remainder of his time in London, and that was made up mainly of postal workers. And as I said, he was president in 1907 uh, when McGuire, when McCarthy stepped down. He was president again, on, and he was president of Clint until 1909 when McCarthy took over again. So That sounds like a Vladimir Putin-like move. <laughs> Come here to me. I'm going to step down for a couple of years till the coast is clear. Then you get out of the way and I'll be back on top again. <laughs> it can't be me the whole way through. We have to make no, it look... No, no. Now, who knows? Well, who, who knows? But it is... Obviously, but the point is, which is obvious, is they were obviously very close. Yes. And trusted each other. Yes. Implicitly. To do the right thing, as yes. I would say. Yes. So then, prefiguring Maguire's later life, his brother Richard died from TB in 19, July 1912. And his brother John died from the same disease in November 13. So it's um, prefigured, as I said, what would, what would happen to poor Sam in the end. Mm. So his GA career then was, um, as I said, London were allowed to play in what they called the away final. And Sam played in four finals, uh, 1900, 1901, 1902 and 1903. Goodness. Uh, London continued to play in the away final until, I think, 1908, when the away final was the, 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 sorry, eliminated from the GA calendar. I was, you know, you'd wonder, so the, the winner of the 32 counties played London, uh, probably because of the significance of London as, as a place in the world. Oh, it, yeah, and I think the GA wanted to spread. Yes, its influence in London, and that was a good way to do it. Then mm. was to mm. um, publicity. Well, they, they recognised it as a province of London, as a province of Ireland, which was lovely. Goodness me, yeah. <laughs> Ireland declared that yes. London was a province. So we, it was a bit of a reversal. 
right. uh, we're 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 going to claim you. How do you, right. how do you feel about that? <laughs> oh, good lord! So he plays in a few. Well, do you call them all Ireland finals? I mean, I guess. Uh, well, they were called away finals. They were called they away were, finals. Okay. Problem was that London, a bit like not being smart nor being sarcastic mm. about mm. London, but a bit like London in modern times. They weren't able to compete with the home teams at all. Yes. And certainly not the All-Ireland winners from the 32 you'd, counties. You'd imagine. So the, the scores were always very one-sided. Yeah. And I suspect but that it was might be part of, of the reason as well. It that, was probably a know. bit of a jolly, though, for, for the winners. It was, prob- <laughs> it was probably half, half the, you know, lads, win the cup and we're over to London for, 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 for an owl weekend that we won't... No, no, rem- London, London came to Dublin. Oh, is that it? Yeah. Oh. And I should say there, you know, we nearly skipped over this, mm. Uh, the first game played in the Athletic Grounds in 1904 was that away final in which Sam Maguire played. And when you say the Athletic Grounds, do you mean Jones's Cork. Road? Oh, in Cork, as in yeah. the... the, the, yeah. the, the GA Grounds the, in Cork, Yes, yeah. the original uh, yeah. Parky Cueve. Yeah, exactly. Sorry, ah. Parky Cueve, yeah. So the yeah. first game in the Athletic Grounds, yeah. Sam Maguire played in it. was London versus All-Ireland champions, whoever they were. I can't remember. Hmm. But what's important is that Sam Maguire played in, in that first game. Wow, he must have been very proud of that. His family must have been there. Oh, yeah. And they, they talked about, they, they got a hammering anyway, I'd have to look that up again. Hmm. But they had um, they had to travel by ferry and they had to sleep on deck the night before. <laughs> and it was pointed out that that was perhaps not the best preparation <laughs> for a match. Yes, I can imagine. <laughs> so that was, that was the 1902 final, which was played in 1904. And um, they were invited by the Lord Mayor to a dinner, but they refused to go because members of the police and the armed forces would be present. Mm. <laughs> they were serious men. Yes, yes. Uh, <laughs> with, with probably stories to hide. <laughs> <laughs> Good point, yeah. So as I mentioned then, in 1902, he was recruited by Lee McCarthy into the IRB. And seven years later, he recruited Michael Collins into the IRB. When Collins went to fight in 1916, Maguire was advised by the volunteer leadership to um, stay in London and stay in his job because that could be of great significance in the future struggle. Mm. So then his, um, he became, Collins, as I said earlier, became leader of the IRB after 1916. Mm. And Maguire became his main man in London. Anybody Collins sent to London was told, contact Maguire, that he was the leading man. Mm. And his activities then, because he worked in the post office, he was able to organize a very um, efficient Mm. interception service, intercepting military posts going from London to Dublin (laughs) or any other part of of Ireland, copy the, the material and give it to Collins in Dublin. He had a very, very efficient postal service himself. I'd say he did. Yeah, getting messages to Collins and getting replies through men on the ferries. He had men on the sorting carriages and the trains carrying the mail, Mm. and they would identify the military communications. He was in charge of an enormous, well, very big anyway, armed smuggling operation. And this involved, because getting guns is never an easy thing to do, and involves you in all sorts of nefarious people and places. And in the book, there are some very funny stories about the people and places they met um, because they had to involve themselves sometimes with criminals or semi-criminals to get arms. They also proposed what the um, provisional IRA would later call spectaculars. And one of these was that the British Army or the British government was proposing to introduce conscription into the army in Ireland in 1918, and they decided that if the British government did this, they would go into the Parliament when the Act was being passed and shoot the British captains. Jesus. <laughs> wow. So they were willing to be daring, and they were told that the possibility of escaping was almost nil. Then, when Terence McSweeney was on hunger strike, they had a plan to kidnap members of the British cabinet. Uh, to hold them hostage for McSweeney's life or for his release. But also that was, um, what would you say, that wasn't carried out because they did carry out um, 
surveillance of the members of the British cabinet mm. in, a, in, in, in preparation for these operations. Mm. And they reported that they were able to find very interesting facts about, about the private lives. I'm sure they were. <laughs> Nothing has changed. Wow. And I'm just looking, McCarthy's still alive, so he might not be necessarily involved, but he knows about all of this. Oh, God, he does, yeah. Mm. Oh, jeez, he does, yeah, yeah. So they also conducted arson attacks because the auxiliaries were burning houses and creameries and Sinn Féin offices in, in Ireland, and they obviously burned Cork City. Mm-hmm. So Maguire and the IRA in England and London uh, carried out arson attacks which caused panic and fear. And at one point, there were barricades in Downing Street following um, one of their attacks in London. And a very interesting connection then to West Cork is that there was a, an officer in the Essex Regiment in Bandon called Major Percival. And Tom Barry described him as one of the most uh, bitter enemies of Ireland. And Barry and the column tried several times to kill Percival. Mm. So then Maguire learned that <clears throat> Percival was coming to England on holidays and they set up, Collins set up an assassination team who were waiting at a London station for Percival to get off the train when suddenly across the street they saw Sam Maguire frantically waving his hands. He'd been informed by one of his informers in the police that the operation had been tumbled and that the police were on their way to arrest the IRA group. So, very, very, very significant to Michael Collins, hugely significant in the War of Independence um, in every possible way. He sided again, as I said earlier, with Michael Collins in the Civil War, and that, um, I'm sure, sidelined him in the GA as well. So his friend from Bandon um, had become Secretary of the Department of Post and Telegraphs in, in, in Dublin, and he offered Sam a job in the post office. Sam returned to the, post, the Irish post office in 1923 and took up his job there. In 1924, um, following the end of the, the Irish Civil War, the Free State Government found itself with an army, I think, of 55,000 men. By contrast, our modern army is about 9,000 men, I think. And they couldn't afford it, and they had no need for such a large army. So they had to demobilize the army. The problem was, if you were demobilized, there were no jobs anywhere. There was contention over who was going to be demobilized and who was going to be kept on. So some officers staged what was called the Army Mutiny early in 1924. Maguire was associated with this mutiny, but he didn't lose his job at that point. In December 1924, he was dismissed from his job because Kevin O'Higgins, the Minister for Justice, suggested he was involved in a second attempt to create a mutiny, this time involving um, ordinary soldiers, sergeants and corporals. Previously, he'd been officers who were involved in the mutiny. And Maguire was dismissed from his job, never given a hearing, never allowed to see the evidence, because O'Higgins said it would lead to the deaths of witnesses if the evidence was revealed. So they gave him, I think, a sum of £100, let him go without a pension, and he just then returned to Dunmanway. And on 6th of February 1927, just before, I think, his 50th birthday, he died of TB in, um, just before his 50th birthday in his home in Malabraca on the 6th of February in 1927. The family home. So he died from TB as well. In the in the family home, Kieran, yeah. Yeah, Malabrack at the family home. So did they? Did they? Did, did that stay in the family? It's it's Indeed, not. Yeah, Molly. Um, his last sister, Mar- Mary, or Molly as they called her, was living there up to the 1960s, and um, she was in very bad a very bad way, as you can imagine, an old woman living on her own, and the local man Dick Neal uh, organised for her to get a house in town. So she ended up living in Dunman. My, my brother, my older brother remembers doing messages for her, as we used to say at the time. Mm. So she probably died. I can't remember when she died. No, she would have died in the 1960s, I suppose. Mm. So there are no... The frightening thing is that um, there were seven children, I think, and there are no direct descendants, mm. which is amazing. Yeah. You'd wonder, had he... I mean, you can have TB for a while, can't you? If he dies absolutely, in February yeah, he 27th... He had it for a while, yeah. yeah he could yeah. have had it through that period of the, yeah, of no, the army yeah. mutiny and the like. Yeah. I, I, so... It's a, that's a murky end. Uh, oh, it's terrible. 
how how involved like where does from the post office to the officers in the Irish army maybe, maybe they're just people he knows or maybe it's they would have been they would have been IRA men ah, and so they would have been a lot of them were so he'd have known were, them well a lot of them were Collins's men and would have been very close to Collins and Maguire would have known them very well interesting no, he would, yeah. The Irish, the Free State Army, what the officers would have been, many of them would have been yeah, um, yeah. Collins' men. Mm. And what the government then decided to do was that there were a lot of ex-British soldiers, which annoyed these men intensely, mm. were being kept on, and IRA men were being demobilised. So they objected strenuously to, 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 to that happening. Yeah, and why. it is no regard that it was very significant that eventually the army accepted the government's decision and as we know, our Irish army has never been involved in politics or anything like that ever since. Mm. Because in many other countries in the world, the army does get involved in politics. So that's regarded as a very significant point in Irish history, where the Irish army could have maybe had a coup d'etat or something like yeah. that or overthrew the government. Yeah. So then, when he died, a group of very prominent people from the IRB and from the GEA decided that they would form a committee to uh, raise funds for um, a cup in his memory, which I think is a tribute to his significance, that these were the leading members of the IRB, many of them, again, close associates of Connell's and members of the GAA in Dublin and London, all felt that he deserved recognition, and they put together the, the money, £300, um, 20,731 euros in current money in 2019. I apologise. Um, so the design was based on the Arda Chalice, which was found near Arda in, in Limerick. And that was an old um, chalice, design of chalice, um, which had two handles, as you know, from looking at it. Mm-hmm. And Fenton O'Toole points out that we regard the Sam Maguire Cup as the holy grail of Gaelic football. And he suggests that the design, that there was a monk called Alcuin who came back from the Holy Land way back to, to 2000, sorry, around the year 900 or 1000. And he described, what he described was the um, chalice used by Jesus at the Last Supper. And it turns out that the Arda chalice is based on that design. So it might literally be the Holy Grail. Very good. Yeah. Very good. We'll have the Templars and the Rosicrucians and, right. <laughs> and the whole lot turning up Jesus, to I forgot that. Turning up to Croke Park. They'd be like, what? Hang on. Yeah, yeah. We're so taking that. was retired in 1988. That's, that is a fabulous story, though, you know, when, yeah. you, when you link it to that. that mm. There's at least some story that exists of a monk coming back from the Holy Land yeah, yeah. with the design of a, of a, of a chalice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, the Holy Grail was the... After, um, after was which the Arda chalice is modelled, after which, exactly, yeah. you know, the, the, the Sam Maguire Cup, the original yeah, Sam yeah, Maguire yeah, Cup, at least, yeah. made by Staunton and Staunton. Staunton and Staunton. You, I, I was just going to say that. Uh, the cup was retired... In 1988, again, just like McCarthy, because it was getting damaged. And Meade were the last to win it and the first to win the replacement, which the J called Sam Oag. Now, let me have a think, because I did a podcast on the double with Adrian mm. uh, earlier this year. And uh, there was one of those finals that Meade won before Cork bet them for the double in 1990. Yeah. That, um that there was a lot of bitterness over that Cork should should have won it. Was it the eighty eight one or was it the eighty nine one? Might we won't be, know. yeah. Your knowledge of Jay is better than mine. Yeah, <laughs> we won't know now. There you go. It's one of the other. So there you go. There's the story of the yeah, three the three Cork characters. Yeah. The yeah. the G the Holy Trinity of the GAA all Corkmen. <laughs> Croke from Kilbrin in Ballyclaw, McCarthy born uh, from Ballygarvan parents in London. That's right. And Maguire from Malabraca, out in just Manway, outside yeah, Dunmanway yeah. in the heart of West Cork. Mm. Mad. There we go. Well, now we have it. I, I always kind of wanted to know the the, the, yeah. the the story of the three of them. And I knew more yeah. about the Maguire one, a bit more about McCarthy, less yeah. so about Croke. Yeah. Um, uh, 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 Parky Cueve is named after a, a, a GAA administrator. who That's was, right, who was yeah, sent. Yeah, But yeah. I, when you told me the story about Maguire playing in the athletic grounds in the first yeah. game there, I did a bit of a Google while you were while you were talking. Now, I'm yeah. still listening, don't worry. Uh, but I found something interesting on that. Yeah. Uh, on the Cork GAA website right. about it. So September 11th, 1904, 
Tower. Great occasion for the association to coincide with the official opening of the newly constructed Cork, Cork Athletic Grounds. The 1902 All-Ireland Finals were played there. And as yeah, you mentioned, yeah. the, these finals will be played at later. So in 1904 oh, were, yeah, was the 1902. Was 1923, I think, was the first time they were played in the calendar year. Wow. <laughs> The grounds on the site of Parky Cueve were formally opened by Lord Mayor Augustine Roach in a brief ceremony. Over 20,000 spectators Good turned God. up. There were not enough turnstiles to get them in for the first match. The cheering of the crowd inside provoked large numbers into climbing over the corrugated <laughs> iron surrounds, which were damaged in the process. Jeez. There were two refreshment rooms inside the grounds. One of these collapsed from the weight of people who climbed... <laughs> What are you laughing for? These are bad stories. <laughs> from the weight, from the yes, from the weight of people who climbed onto the roof. Fortunately, no one was injured. The games themselves are one-sided. Do we know which of the sports Maguire played? Was it football? Football, all football. Okay, so here we go. We have it now. The games themselves were one-sided. Dungourney easily defeated London in the hurling final. Yeah. While Bray Emmets, representing Dublin, defeated London Irish two-eight to one-two in the football. Yeah, because at the time. Um, Counties were represented by yes. club, the yes. club champions. Yes. Musical the, club, int- the club champions could pick people from other clubs in that county. Oh, right. Interesting. So even when Maguire's team didn't win the London Championship, Maguire was frequently selected on the London team. I see. Yeah. Uh, musical entertainment you may be interested to hear provided by the Barrack Street and Butter Exchange bands. Oh, good lord. Yep. <laughs> uh, no get, uh, we, there's no getting away from them in Cork. They'll be there, the Barracka. The Barracka and the Buttera. And a band yeah. from Middleton too. So there we go. Wow. Mad. Brilliant. Uh, I'm delighted with that, Kieran Connolly. Thank you very much. So that is it. That's that's yeah. Croke, McCarthy, and Maguire. Uh, I, I'm very grateful to you, Kieran Connolly, well, no, author. I, love that. No, I enjoyed that. Author of Sam Maguire, the Man and the Cup. Uh, well worth a read. Did you play football <laughs> yourself? Dahanies is your home club, and, 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 and I'm. Is, yeah. Hang on, let me give the credit now because I got onto someone in Dahanies. That's how I tracked you down, Daniel O'Donovan. Thank you, sir. And I oh, said well to him, done. "Let me know if I can ever help on Red FM at all." And he says, "I might take you up in your offer sometime." <laughs> <laughs> Fair play to you, Daniel O'Donovan. You'll be more than welcome. And thank uh, you. Yeah. grateful well, to you thank too. Thank you, Daniel. Gur- I appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, Mila Mila God, Kieran Connolly. No, thank no, you so thank much for you. that. You're great. Appreciate that. You've been listening to a Red FM podcast. For more extra content, go to redextra.ie.